five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, two. The mind is like, gotta get my levels right there. The mind is like water when it's turbulent. It's difficult to see, but when it's calm, everything becomes clear. I have no idea where that quote came from. It's something I've had in a journal for a very, very long time. But it speaks in so many different ways within my life. The water has... It, it's always been my safe haven. And... It's been my identity. It's been where I go to retreat. It's been a place of healing. I grew up in the unlikely world of water in Tempe, Arizona as a desert rat. And later on in Fort Worth, Texas, where you don't think of there being a lot of water. But actually there is because of all the lakes that were built by the Corps of Engineers. And all those locations were really the... They were unlikely places, but they provided experiences that led me into a place where the aquatic realm would be a place for healing, it'd be a place for building confidence, self-esteem, self-worth. And in this episode, I'm going to talk a lot about self-value and esteem and how we change, or at least I want to start introducing the discussion of how we change our mental mapping so that we are more confident and feel more self-value. Because when others see, I mean, there's just, there's this presence that you give off when you can walk into a room and you feel valued and you feel confident. Other people pick up on that. And I think diving is an amazing way to take someone, even if they are low on confidence, low on self-esteem, low on self-value. Diving and the diving community has an amazing way of transforming people. As a kid, I had a love for a water and that was combined with what could have been, you know, I don't want to say traumatic experiences, but because I think that word gets overused quite a bit, but there were certainly some very uncomfortable experiences. I was really fortunate. My folks introduced me to the water at a very young age, and this is back in the 1970s. At our very first house, I remember my dad put up a small swimming pool, and I could swim. I could try to comprehend how the snorkel was used. wasn't quite getting it because I was so young. I didn't realize that you couldn't breathe on the snorkel underwater, but those lessons came later. But I used to watch these classic shows like Jacques Cousteau, Sea Hunt. You know, those were like weekly TV series. And then movies like The Frogmen, uh, you know, about World War II Frogmen in the uh, the Pacific. Creature from the Lost Lagoon, Beneath 12 Mile Wreath, you know, and Undersea Girl. Those were all influences. And I would spend time in that little pool and other pools later on holding my breath for as long as I could and just explore my little three-foot universe. It was years later that I spent time at 
McClintock High in the high school swimming pool. It was maybe a five at max 10 minute bicycle ride from my house. I would go down there. It was like 15 cents to get in. Later on, I joined the swim team, but I remember going down there with my mom a lot and really learning, really learning to not be afraid of the deep end of the pool. Because, you know, I, you know, I grew up at a time when, when Peter Benchley, who was also from Arizona, decided to terrify and scare the hell out of all of us with a movie called Jaws. But it was that, that pool that was within that walking distance, riding distance, I'd ride my Schwinn five-speed down there every day, pay my 15 cents, and spend the entire day. Sometimes ignoring the rule of waiting, I don't know, what was it, 30 minutes, 90 minutes, something? I don't know. I never paid attention to the rule. They had lifeguards that would sit there and monitor you as you went up to the snack bar, and they would try to keep time. Of course, they were high school students. They didn't care, right? But, you know, they would try to watch how much time that you spend over there and warn you, hey, make sure you don't swim after X number of minutes. But I, I mean, I loved that pool. And that's where, even though for me it wasn't a social experience, it was a, it was a place that I could really hone, without knowing it, those aquatic skills. During the summertime, I played parks and rec ball, Tempe Parks and Recreation ball, and our coaches would all warn us not to swim on game days. It didn't matter. I was a horrible ball player. I had like a zero 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 batting average my eighth grade year. I, I was actually afraid of the ball. Remember on a couple of podcasts, you know, I talked about amygdala, amygdala hijack. Man, my amygdala was in full control anytime a ball was pitched at me. And, and, I, and I know the reasons why. It's because I was hit with a baseball a lot, sometimes on purpose uh, with a friend of mine that I'll talk about here in a minute, who was a complete bully. But on swim days or, or game days, I, I would swim anyway. I was a horrible ball player. I didn't care. And later on, I would, I would join the swim team. I wasn't the fastest, but I could certainly endure. I could, I could go much, much longer. But that is the period of life where I think a lot of anxiety and bad experiences, I don't want to call them trauma because it didn't come across like that, but there was anxiety and bad experiences, they really could have derailed me. Now, one was the movie Jaws, 1976. Peter Benchley decided to scare everybody out of the water with his book. And then later on, the movie Jaws. I was too young to go see the movie at the time. I actually snuck in, and I fully admit now, come on, guys, I was 11 years old at the time. I was 11 or 12 at the time. I snuck in because rumors around the neighborhood was that you could see bare breast. So I'm thinking, Hey, bare breast like to go see that. I went to go see it only to be, well, again, not traumatized, horrified. when I saw the bare breasted lady consumed, uh, and, and made into an hors d'oeuvre by this uh, fictional great white shark. And, um, I was never afraid of breast again, but I was certainly afraid of sharks. And I was convinced because I went like, I don't know, because it was like the social thing to do. A few months later, we went to go see Jaws at the McClintock High School swimming pool. Yeah, I was deathly afraid of the deep end. I swore there was a shark that was going to come out of the drain at some point. So when I have divers, and I do have divers that are scared of drains for some reason. Well, not for some reason, for, for probably a good reason. I understand that fear because I lived it. The only difference was I was able to overcome that at, you know, 
12, 13, 14, somewhere in there. Whereas as adults, we still have to work through that. And that's cool. We're, we're going to work through that. But, you know, th- that, w- that was the fictional part of it. But there was true dangers that lurked in Arizona. Arizona's agriculture system depends on the miracle of canals. And it was originally created by the Hohokam Indians that first settled there. And I think, I'm pretty sure that that the Navajo and Arapaho and Apache, uh, and and forgive me because I don't remember a lot of that, even though that was part of Arizona history that we had to learn. I know that there were other nations that perfected canal systems, but it was the Hohokams that really first developed the canals in, in Arizona. And what it does, it brought the mountains from the water out to the dry desert, making Arizona not only, you know, able to, you know, make it a habitat, but you could also grow crops there, which then it transitioned to people actually establishing villages and and things like that. Those canals are really tempting for a bunch of desert rats needing to cool off. And that, you know, just looking at the cool water that's flowing through, it's like a siren from the deep that's calling to its next victim. And usually it's some kid who's just wanting, you know, to take a deep, uh, you know, or to, to get into to something that, that doesn't look that deep and get relief from the stifling summer heat. You know, you've been out mowing lawns or riding your bike or working the fields. But the shape of the canal in itself is a death trap. It's got these, it's got these steep sides that are, you know, like a 45 to 60 degree angle. And even if you could find something to pull on or get a grip with, I mean, they're incredibly hard to pull yourself out of because they're not always full. So you may, you may jump into a canal, but you still have two, three, four feet to crawl out of on this 45 to 60 degree angle. Really difficult to get out of. Plus, even though it looks like this gentle, you know, river that's, that's flowing along, there is, you know, there, there's, there's this flow that is really unpredictable and it can look smooth on the surface, but it's actually flowing at a rate of about three to 10 knots which doesn't sound bad, but it's actually really, really, it's, it's really turbulent, right? And it, it's really swift. It's far too swift even for experienced swimmers to get out of. And then that flow also causes panic as soon as you enter or you feel like that you're in trouble. You're quickly pushed downstream away from your entry point and maybe from your friends. And then you try to reach that steep, steep bank, but your hands get ripped away from anything that you, that you try to grab to self-arrest yourself. And and even if you do get a hold of something like a piece of rebar or a place where there's a, you know, where there's a, a deformity or a crack in the concrete, it's really hard to maintain that grip. And even if you are a good swimmer and you manage to tread water as you travel, well, pretty soon there's debris on the bottom that are going to entangle you. There's weeds that grow in those canals when it's dry. There's trash. There's Palo Verde tree trunks and pine tree trunks that have come down from the mountains and all that kind of stuff, right? And anything that can find its way in the canal is there to trap your legs. And then you're pivoted by the flow and it pins you under. And even if you survive all that, at some point, you're going to come up to the grates. And they're placed there to help trap debris, but it can also trap the person in the canal and it pins them under. And then at that point, I mean, you're exhausted and you're unwilling to fight for your life. I can remember being on the scene as a kid pulling up when somebody drowned in the canal. And again, it's usually some kid that fell in, you know, that, that just happened to fall in, right? 
And, you know, as a, as a fellow member of that Kib tribe, who, you know, I'd also been tempted by the same siren of the canal. I knew he didn't fall in. He went swimming. You don't just fall into a canal. I mean, they're out in the middle of the desert. You have to actually trek to it and, and jump in. You don't just fall in. And in my little kid brain, I used to imagine that there's a siren or a spirit that would tempt young, especially white boys, since we had, you know, you know, the Caucasians and the whites had settled that area on top of the Indians. But I used to, I used to imagine like we were, we were getting tempted by a young Hohokam girl that was upset that we had disturbed the land that her and her ancestors had, had always lived on. And even though as white settlers, we never crossed paths with the Ho- the Hohokams, which were an ancient civilization, somehow in my head, it made sense how this beautiful girl would call us to go out and swim with her. Remember, I snuck into the movie Jaws to go see Breast. And while dipping into that blissfulness of that cool water to escape the feel, you know, to escape the heat of working the fields or mowing lawns or riding our bikes or whatever it was, baseball practice or whatever, right? She would tempt us in. For me, those experiences were not with a beautiful Indian maiden calling me into a canal, but it was equally, if not more terrifying because it was very real. And it was my quote unquote best friend, Greg. Greg's family had a pool. And among other mean things that Greg would do to me, like hitting me with baseballs during what was supposed to be friendly batting practice, Greg would routinely hold me under water. I really think Greg had some serious issues. Now, he would protect me from other people, but that was almost like I was his ticket to you know that was the price of entry to be part of a circle but but it's like it gave him permission to pound on me to beat on me to make me the scapegoat for things that he had done and it was kind of like the rights and privileges of being his toady that starts to pound on you with your self-value and your self-esteem, and your self-worth. You see, in Greg's pool, he would get away with things like, well, things he couldn't get away with at the McClintock High School pool. He could hit me. He could punch me. He could hold me underwater. You have to remember, if you've listened to other parts of this podcast, I was severely underweight, undersized. So, I mean, I was, I was a perfect target for Greg and others. But he could bully me. He could pull me under. He could push me around. But one day there was a change. You see, going back to that first pool my dad put up and discovering I could hold my breath for a really, really long time and that I wouldn't panic and all the laps that my mom made me swim and all the extra laps that a swim coach used to make me swim the water was my domain. So one afternoon, I learned that, first of all, if I stopped fighting and resisting, he'd get bored. He'd leave me alone. It's like the dude had a part of his amygdala that was, it was, it was like the, the uh, chase response that bears and dogs and mountain lions have. 
that prey response. And if I relaxed, he would stop. Pretty soon I found out that I could hold my breath longer than what Greg's attention span was. So each time he would hold me under, I would simply calm myself, I would go limp, and I would wait to be freed. I've had people give me the nickname Scuba Monk because of the way I approach diving. If that is true, then that's the day I first entered the sacred monastic grounds of water. Because after that, anytime things got rough on the surface, I would retreat to the deep end. When he got violent, the only action I would take as he began to harass me was to calmly work my way to the deep end of the pool where I could hold my breath longer. If he grabbed me, I would passively hold on to him and I would take us both for a ride to that limited abyss where I knew how to clear my ears. And I'd passively hold on to him there a little longer than what he was comfortable with. That's when the tide was turned. In 1979, we relocated to Texas. And gone was those bike rides that, went, that took me to the local swimming pool. But I didn't really care because North Texas has some amazing lakes. It's got some fantastic places to go swim, to boat, to fish, and then to water ski. There are private ponds I could go swim and fish. There are beaches where high school kids would gather for the summer and after school. We hadn't lived there a really long time when my dad purchased a 15-foot tri-hull ski and fish boat. It's called the Tango 2. And that was our family's getaway. And it was my getaway from all the crap I had to deal with in high school. Again, the water was my sanctuary. Moving to Texas was not a great thing for a high school student. First of all, I went to a school that graduated less than 100 people. My freshman year, we had less than 400. I think we had somewhere around 300-ish, right? I hadn't grown there, and I moved at a time that a bunch of people were relocating to Texas from places like Chicago and Detroit and New York, and they were considered Yankees. I was from Arizona. Arizona was a Confederate territory, so guys, don't call me Yankees. Go, go read a freaking history book, okay? Um, but, but that was the culture. I was in a high school where somebody passed me a flyer for the KKK. So outsiders were not accepted. So that lake, being in Tango 2, going out and fishing those local ponds, that was my getaway. I loved it. And some of my best family memories were out there on the water. My mom was the one who actually taught me how to water ski. My dad and I would, would fish. I loved being on the water. I loved that feeling in the morning when we would offload the boat, put it into the lake, we'd speed out from the docks. I loved the days I was out there with my dad and we hit that first spot where we drop a lure in. That feeling of cutting through the fog when it's covering the lake and that sun breaks the horizon. The first splash of that huge bass on the surface as it breaks water. 
that cool feeling as you fall over the side of the boat with your ski in hand, swinging your way back to the, to the tow rope. Guys, I can still feel the rush of the water over my hands as we would speed along. I'd reach out to the water over the side and feel the spray as it cut past the side of the boat. I would begin to mentally focus and picture myself on that next ski run, what I was going to do. And in those moments, as I look back, as the turbid waters calm, I was becoming one with the water. On trips with high school classmates, we would go out to Burgers Lake. It was a good-sized swim area, supplied by an artesian well. I'm sure by now it's been updated, but when I swam there back in the 80s, it was pretty rustic. I mean, you had to be careful on the docks so you didn't get splinters in your feet, that kind of stuff, right? I wasn't a jock, so I didn't hang out with, you know, the athletes and the cheerleaders. I played sports, but I wasn't a jock, right, if that makes sense. I wasn't popular, and at the time, I wasn't confident. Again, very undersized. But I was known for finding wallets. People would come to me if they lost class rings or sunglasses. By the time I was 16, I could, and I can verify, that I could hold my breath for a solid three minutes. And that helped a lot because when I would go out there, I was the nerd that would take a set of uh, Healthways, uh, scuba fins, a scuba mask, and I'd go find lost stuff. I was out there finding a lost booty while I was trying to impress local high school young booty. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was those times where I was finding kind of my niche. Now, still, the self-confidence and self-esteem is still pretty low at this point. Later on, I made a lot of successful attempts to go scuba, you know, to take scuba lessons, but it always seemed like the local scuba shop was never uh, really inviting and never really provided an avenue to start. But it was Terry Tapp, a friend of my folks, and my dad had played, uh, my dad had played rec football with, with Terry. They were actually linemen together. Uh, he's the one who really got me introduced into scuba. So I was on leave for, uh, you know, I was, I was on leave from the Air Force. I had recently applied to go uh, get, a, get a dive position at the tactical dive school that they had at the time. And because my career field would occasionally get slots. And in addition to that, I've been getting trained by the combat control team at my duty station. I was in really tight with the combat controllers. We did a lot of flyway missions together and that kind of stuff. All combat controllers and pararescue men are required to go to dive school. I had put in my paperwork to cross train and was waiting for approval to go. Uh, there were some things that happened, uh, good things that happened in my career that didn't have me follow in that path. There was things that took me up to Fort Dix and things like that. But it was Terry who really introduced me to the water and man, uh, on scuba, and man, things took off. Terry had taught uh, scu uh, scuba down in Florida. He had a scuba rig, basically put me into a pool with a few instructions and then just let me go. So it was, it was a few months after that, you know, and I'll, and I'll tell the story in another podcast that I got my opportunity to, to go to a tactical dive course. And what was happening is suddenly, with other things that were happening in my life, self-value, self-confidence, self-esteem started coming back. Because the scuba monk, or what was to become the scuba monk, was now on a path 
to learn the discipline of diving that would forever that would forever change his life. That tactical course was one of the toughest courses I've ever been to. But like warrior monks, I became a person who let her combine, who, who really just later on, I would combine the aspects of being a monk, such as a deep devotion to the water and kind of an aesthetic lifestyle. While balancing that with being a warrior trained to engage in violent conflict, while leading a peaceful life. When we talk about self-esteem and when we talk about changing those neural pathways, we need to understand what is it? You know, what, what is low self-esteem? And it's, and it's having that opinion that you have of yourself that's low. You see, when you have a healthy self-esteem, you tend to think positively about yourself. You're optimistic about life. People who have healthy self-esteem know that they're valuable. And they can name positive qualities about themselves. And when you walk into a room and you have self-confidence and you have positive self-esteem, people read that. For me, the past couple of years, there has been... And, 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 I, and I wish this was one of those lessons that I would learn and I would just stick with it because every now and then I need reminders. I have to go back in and retrain my brain. It's getting better. But there's things like knowing and understanding myself. The past few years, I've had to learn how to draw hard lines. I've had to know where I stand, even if it's unpopular. You know, there, there's, a, there's a morale patch out there that says zero, and I'll just use F-bomb, but zero F-bombs given. And you have to develop that type of a mentality to help build that self-esteem and that self-confidence and that self-value. But I've had to work on building a strong sense of self-worth. Because if you think poorly of yourself, others are going to find you unworthy as well. If you don't think of yourself as being valuable, you're not going to look valuable to others. So you have to set expectations of how you want to be treated. If someone makes you feel less valued, by, you know, then, then you just drop them out of your life. Surround yourself with people that make you feel more valuable. In the past three or four years, three, four, five years, I've had to do that. I've had to fire relationships because they're taking that energy out. When you've got self-low esteem, you think like, you know, I don't deserve this. And you become eager to please. And people pick up on that. They pick up on that you feel self-conscious. You, they hear you criticize yourself. They hear you blame yourself. They hear you focus on your own weaknesses. They see you avoiding challenges. And that you're apologizing a lot. They see that you can't assert yourself. Now, there's a spectrum, all right? I'm not, I'm not saying that I can walk in or anybody can walk in and just always, 100% of the time, take over the room because it's situational. So you have low self-esteem in certain situations. You know, so there's certain situations that might trigger self-doubt. 
there are situations where you believe at least some positive things about yourself. You know, that's, that's, if you think about that, that's like on the left-hand side of the spectrum. Then you go far right on the spectrum where you have self-doubts in all situations and you self-criticize in all situations. And those can have a strong impact on your daily life. You see things that you believe about yourself to be facts. You might think negatively about yourself, about your abilities or your future. Like, I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. Nobody's ever going to love me. That's how you think. And what happens is then you feel. You feel low. You feel sad. You feel deflated. You feel hopeless. You feel like everybody's out to get you because you've got this feeling of being persecuted. You're anxious. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're frustrated. And those things manifest itself in areas like you struggle to assert yourself. You avoid people. You avoid places. You criticize yourself out loud and to yourself. You don't try things because you feel that you might fail. You overcompensate by trying to please other people or be perfect or try to prove yourself or overworking. Man, I know people that, I mean, their entire worth is based on what they do that puts money in their pocket. They work crazy hours at work, and that's their only life. And it's because, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but the people that I know, they are compensating for something else in life or the lack of something else in life. And if you get them outside that work environment and you don't allow them to talk about work or project or a new initiative that they're passionate about, there's nothing there. You start to find people who are really empty and they're trying to overplease a boss and they're trying to compensate for other things. I've got a diver that I'm putting through breathe right now. And he grew up in a family of doctors, researchers, scientists, engineers. And as he was growing up, he was always compared with his sisters who were the good ones, right? He was someone who was a lot more attractive. I mean, like model type attractive still as a 30 year old man, still very fit, very attractive, very energetic, very charismatic. He was the kid that climbed rocks, climbed trees, climbed furniture, was always out running around with the dog, but often got told off for that. As he was getting older, going through high school, 
going through life was always compared to his sisters. Why can't you be more like them? And really start to wonder if there wasn't something that was wrong with him. You know, his sister was that, or his, both, you know, his, both his sisters were always the, you know, was the well-behaved at home, well-behaved at school, didn't get into trouble. And he was finding that even the teachers were comparing him to his sisters and saying, you know, why can't you be more like her? Which really left him feeling like he wasn't good enough and couldn't make achievements like his sisters did academically. And while he chose a military life, enlisted in the military, one sister became a research professor, the other joined the military after becoming a doctor and joined as an officer. He gets out of the military, finds out that he's burned out at work, relationship ends after six, seven years, was depressed, felt like he had a failed life, felt like that even though he gave 110% and always tried to do things perfect, never wanted to let anybody down, was just overwhelmed. All that work and all that struggle left little time for personal life, for partner, for friends. He worried that if he ever said no to his boss, he'd think that his, bo you know, his boss would think that he wasn't up to it. What we're doing in Breathe and what we are about to do with dive certification is completely changing things. It's not because diving is some magic pill. But it's because he's being put into an environment where he can begin to look at accomplishments. It's looking into an area where he's got a community that is supporting him. And what he's finding is that he can break out of those experiences like punishment or even neglect that caused that low self-esteem. He's finding places where he's getting warmth, where he's getting affection, he's getting praise, he's getting encouragement. He's able to break away from meeting other people's expectations because his family's reaction to him diving when he broke it to him and again, he was seeking that approval, right? Hey, guess what? I'm going to start diving. I'm going through this program. I'm learning to really relax, get some mindfulness. And now he's finding out that his family, that's just not good enough. And he's finally able at a point to be at a point where he says, I don't care. Zero F-bombs given. He's setting up where he has his own set of expectations. And he doesn't expect anything less. He's setting up those boundaries with family, with friends. He's choosing the people to hang out with. And by the way, sisters are not part of that. He's learning to be picky. 
but he's also breaking away from the negative beliefs. And he's setting up those rules for living. And just like when he started diving, where there might be a danger if rules are broken, he's now able to make anxious predictions about what might happen, and he's transitioned that into life. Positive self-talk has changed. So what he's finding is that, and this is true for everybody, if you understand your core beliefs and those beliefs are currently, hey, I'm a failure, I'm not good enough, I'm unlovable, we all have to understand those beliefs are not necessarily the facts. They're more like opinions. They're your opinion, right? But it's not a fact. And it's relearning how to speak to yourself in a critical way and get away from saying I'm a failure and I'll never get it right. Because self-criticism is rarely the best form of motivation. And, emotion, and emotionally, it has the same effect as being bullied or attacked by someone else. That's where I had to break the mold. By the way, I was successful in the military. Greg was invited to leave boot camp because he couldn't cope. All those years of being the top dog and picking on other people. If you're a believer in karma, there you go. But that's why diving has been good for me and I see it good for other people is that they're getting away from saying things like, I'm not good enough, or I'm fat and I'm disgusting. Guys, go out to a dive site, okay? Everybody struggles to get a wetsuit on. Nobody looks great. Everybody's got snot coming out of their nose. People look funky in masks. A wetsuit accentuates all your curves no matter where they might be. But I'll tell you what you will find out at at least one of our dive sites. You'll find that you're lovable. You'll find out that you're worthy. You'll find out that you're not inferior you're not in the way with diving what you're able to do is you're able to break away from some of those unhelpful rules and those things that 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 you that you say to yourself and 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 just breaking out of all that it's facing your fears and confronting anxiety and anxiety-provoking situations. It's replacing that self-criticism with self-compassion, developing healthier and more flexible rules and beliefs, testing your negative predictions and using behavioral experiments. It's taking chances. It's setting up your own boundaries. Identifying what your core beliefs are and identify your rules for living. Yeah, there are medical treatments out there for low self-esteem and those are definitely worthwhile looking into. 
but just understanding that you are a person who is valued. You come out to that dive site, you're doing something pretty special. A very low percentage of people in the world are certified to dive. That alone is an accomplishment. Very few communities have the accepting nature like diving does. As a diver, you need to be plugging into those communities. And if you're in a community, if you're in a dive community that's not supportive and is egocentric, get out of it. Find a community of people that are going to boost you up. And then take those lessons that you've learned from that dive community and go find one outside of diving or go create your own. Scuba diving, along with other things in my life, has made incredible changes for me. The ability to look at a text and say that, and, and read that someone wants to move on, or you're not what they're looking for. Looking at a response from an, a potential employer and say they've decided to look at other applicants, it doesn't bother you anymore. If you feel good about who you are, you set your expectations for the way you're going to be treated. You know that you're valuable. And you carry yourself with that value. It's okay to be picky. It's okay to set standards. It's okay not to chase every rainbow that's out there. And remember, as long as you've got air, you're all right.